0: All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father Lord, we thank you for this day again. We thank you for this time that you have appointed to speak to us through your word and by your spirit. We ask that you open the eyes of our understanding that we may hear from you and be encouraged by the truth of what Christ has done for us. We pray for all those who are in the hearing of this message, that you do the same to them. Thank you, Lord. Be with us always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright. This morning we are going to be in the book of First Samuel, chapter 18. First Samuel, chapter 18. And we're going to read the whole chapter, verse 1 to 30. I like to read the story before I speak to it, just to bring everybody to the same page or to bring everybody on the same page. But some people have not heard the story or they last heard the story some years back. <laughs> so just to bring the details and freshen them up. for Samuel 18, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul... The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house any more. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely, and Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it had happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments, So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David is and David his ten thousands. Then Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him and he said They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Verse 10, and it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I would pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab." I'll give it to you as a wife, only be valiant for me and fight the lost battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, where am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I shall be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the A whole tight as a wife. Verse 20. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I'll give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly, and say, Look, The king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke. Then Saul said, Thus he shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry but one hundred four skins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies, but Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to become the king's son in law. Now the days had not expired. Therefore David arose and went he and his men and killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and they gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed and that's the word of the Lord. The three titles to our message. Whose son is this? (laughs) Whose son is this? And number two title which is going to carry the message is going to be the king's son-in-law the king's son-in-law. And number three title is A Poor and Lightly Esteemed Man. A Poor and Lightly Esteemed Man. And we continue with our gospel narrative from the book of 1 Samuel. And the gospel nuggets will be as good as the content that God has been pleased to present and to reveal in any story. That is how things work in the gospel business. So we have established many things already and we'll continue to sort out more things as we continue to stitch the gospel puzzle pieces together. This is what has happened. This is the context of what has happened. Israel is in great trouble or has been in great trouble because of the Philistines for testimony of what things opposed the sinner's path to life and righteousness with God. The Philistines represented something in the matter of salvation, the things that would get in the way of your salvation. Essentially to say, sin and the law have webbed an impossible path for us as sinners to come to God, to be reconciled to him by anything that we can do because of what God requires. So sin and law work together. They work as a couple to produce death. Whenever you bring sin and law together, you always have one outcome, and that is death. The wages of sin is death. And with death comes also the sentence of condemnation. Right? And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that the power of sin is in the law. The moment that you give people something to do or not to do, they're going to do it. And when they do it, they get guilty and they're condemned. So that is the function of the law. Thus, if there has to be a way for sinners, if there has to be a path for sinners... To make it right with God, it must come from the sermon that God gave to Goliath to preach. And that is the way of the one representative person or one representative man to come down and stand in the place of sinners and fight in the place of sinners. And fight to the death. And that is say, All matters of salvation. And matters of true religion. Were settled. In the one man. Christ Jesus. Therefore. Anyone. Who ventures out. Of that prescription. Christ is God's prescription to sin. No matter how religious they are or sincere. They are telling a lie on God and on Christ and on themselves. They do not know how God is determined to settle the matter of sin, death, and condemnation. So salvation is in the God-appointed person, the mediator, the representative person, the surety who has taken upon himself all the obligations and liabilities on your behalf to perform perform them to perfection before God. And that person is Christ Jesus and he alone. So it is he who came down in the incarnation. The incarnation simply means God adding flesh to himself. Christ is God in the flesh. And when that happened, that is called the incarnation of the word of God. God adding humanity to himself. And that is the book of John chapter 1. So Christ came down in the incarnation for the purpose of being the ransom for our life, for our freedom. By way of his death on the cross. And Goliath in his words to Israel proposed that blood has to be shed to the death and that to say Christ had to come and die the death of the cross because without death, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no cancellation of sin. God has annexed our salvation to the shedding of blood of his son. But the Lord Jesus was in this matter of salvation for more than our salvation. Jesus did not just come to accomplish our salvation. There was more to it. Hear this from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 12. Let's go to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. The letter of Hebrew says, therefore we also, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us or besets us. And the sin that easily ensnares us is unbelief. That is the context of the discussion in the book of Hebrews. It's unbelief. People not believing God's testimony of Christ. And he continues verse 2 and says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, that's the line that I want to draw your attention to. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there was joy set before Christ that caused him to despise the shame of dying as a criminal on the cross. There was joy Being given, of being given great riches by the King, God the Father. Christ was promised great riches and glory for accomplishing our salvation. Also, the joy of having the King's daughter, the Church. The Church is the King's daughter. Given Him by the Father, the Church was given Christ by the Father but on condition of him redeeming it by way of the death of the cross. And also the joy of justifying all of his father's house, making them free. And the joy, ultimately, of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ looked forward to that, but it was connected to our salvation. So it is important in gospel telling to tell the story not only as it benefits us, the sinners, but as it benefits the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, the whole gospel testimony is not for the sinner, but for the glory of God through the Son. The salvation Of us as sinners was not the ultimate end of God's purpose. The glory of God in the Son was and is the ultimate reason, the ultimate end, the purpose of all of creation and of salvation. Everything in God's creation speaks to the glory of the Son. There's not a single thing. That does not testify of Christ Jesus. And that is why salvation cannot be by works. Because by works we are trying to earn something that God only gives for free. Salvation cannot be earned because it's only given for free. Free of charge. And cannot be lost either because it was never conditioned on you accomplishing it. You can't earn that which is given freely. So we cannot be preaching the complete story of Christ if we do not speak to what it is that he actually accomplished. What did he accomplish? And when we understand that, we have more freedom in our day-to-day life even. So Christ is the proven workman who accomplished something in his appearance in Palestine and in his death on the cross. So David came down to where Goliath was at the battlefield, having refused the armor that was given him by Saul. Saul had wanted to give his armor to David to use it, to fight against Goliath. And David said, no, I can't wear that. It's too heavy for me. I cannot walk in it. Why? Because that was not the way that God was going to accomplish Israel's salvation from the power of the Philistines. Salvation from the Philistines could not be accomplished through carnal means, through weapons or whatever man could devise or bring to the fight. It had to be God-given means. And so we see the Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus, he could have sought help in the time of need. He could have sought the help of angels, or any weapons of war for that matter, he could have gotten from his father. He could have done that. He was God. He is God. The Lord Jesus Christ was not ever vulnerable to his creation. He had power over everything. But this is what we hear from him, the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 26. We are working the David and Christ connections, because that's the only way you're going to understand the story that we have in 1 Samuel 18. In Matthew 26, 51 to 54, we are having the trial of the Lord Jesus, and we have this in the record. Verse 51, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, and that was Peter. It is Peter who cut off the ear of one of the servants of the high priest. Verse 52, But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels. I can pray to my Father, and He can give me all the armor that I need, if I needed it, for this battle. Verse 54, How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? So the Lord was saying, as David I am not going to war, I'm not going to bring about salvation through fleshly means. So he was fulfilling the type of David who went to war against Goliath without a spear or a sword. And David, if you recall, said, I will go in the name of the Lord for the battles of the Lord are not fought by sword and spear and that means not by human effort so salvation could never be by anything that we do it is the Lord's battle okay 1st Psalm 17 verse 50 still connected to that point the text says so David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him but there was no sword in the hand of David. There was no sword in the hand of David when he prevailed against the Philistine, and that's to say, no sword in the hand of Christ when he prevailed against sin, against death and condemnation, but only the nail-scarred hands of the cross, Okay, that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. Jesus said all oh, this is happening that the scriptures may be fulfilled. So we have to know that when the Lord was in Palestine he was fulfilling every scripture that is in the Old Testament. Every jot and tittle of it he said he fulfilled every scripture was fulfilled in him. And so David had to cut off the head of Goliath to speak to the end of those things that Christ would come and bring to an end for his people. Goliath is presenting a lot of problems for God's people and so at the end of the fight his head has to be decapitated and that to say Christ would come and bring an end to sin. He would put away sin and bring an end to our enmity with God. Christ came and brought to an end our enmity with God. He 100% reconciled us to God and made peace for us with the blood of his cross. So God is not mad at anyone for whom Christ died for. It doesn't matter what happens in their life. It is not because God is mad at them. That matter has already been settled. God brought an end to the enmity between himself and his people. Christ put an end to condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's Romans 8 verse 1. So Christ also with that came to bring an end to the ministry of death. And condemnation, the letter that kills, the letter that was engraved on stones, and that is the law. The law, Second Corinthians chapter 3 says, was the ministry of death. It is the letter that kills, the letter that kills. The law kills you if you don't do it to perfection. If you miss one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole thing. That's what the Bible says. Okay, So Christ came to put an end to the condemnation of our transgressions. All of them. And after the Philistines saw that their champion had died, because Goliath had went into the fight representing them all. And when they saw that David had killed him, they all took off running. And Israel pursued them and slaughtered many of them. And that is saying, when Christ has died, something has to run away from you. When Christ has died, something has to run away from you. And the first thing that has to run away from you is condemnation. Condemnation has to flee from you. And all accusations of unrighteousness have to flee. There are no two ways about it because Christ made complete payment; He made full satisfaction for your sin debt before God. So all those things that were against you we have to flee from you. Okay? So Israel routed the Philistines and disposed them of, dispossessed them of their possessions, and that's First Samuel seventeen fifty three. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. The tents of the Philistines were plundered as spoils of war. But why? Why did they plunder them? Because remember, King Saul had done the same thing with the Ammonites and he went and plundered them and he got in trouble. But when it happens with David, the Israelites do not get in trouble for it. Why? Isaiah 53 verse 12. David is representing Christ. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 verse 12, Therefore I will divide him, that is Christ, a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So Christ shall divide and has divided the spoil with the strong. As David and Israel did divide the spoils with the Philistines with were the strong. Christ has divided the spoil by getting his people from the condemnation and also from the power of the devil. Well, the devil is strong, but he could never be stronger than Christ because Christ is God. And yet, the whole world, in their ignorance, even now, are under the power of the evil one. Okay? First Samuel 17 55 to 58. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So after Saul had been, had witnessed the exploits of David, he asked his army commander, Abner, and said, whose son is this youth? He became more curious of David. But that is surprising coming from the king because David had been coming all along and playing the music instrument, the harp for him, and even had served so as his arm bearer. So why would the king come and ask the question Whose son is this? In the light of what has just happened. But this is a great delivery that has happened for Israel. Possibly. Saul wasn't asking who David was. To know David. But was for the first time becoming more curious about David's family connections. Whose son is this? I need to know more about this family. We have a son... Who can do such wonders? Play the music well, and not only that, defeat the Philistines. Whose son is this? But whatever the reason, this is the conversation, verse 56, first Samuel 17. So the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. The king is very much interested in David. Now. Then David, then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. I just find that very interesting. Like David is just dangling the head of the Philistine. He has it with him. Just opens the door with someone's head in his hand. Like, what do you need that for? (laughs) And Saul said to David, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Pay Attention to how David answered. He did not say, I am David. Have you forgotten me, O king? No, he said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. He identified himself With his father. And that to say the Lord Jesus did not go about saying, I'm Jesus. He identified himself as the son of God. As the son of man. The two titles that Jesus identified himself as. I'm the son of God. He identified himself with the father. I am the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And he gets in trouble for it. And Christ comes and says, I am the son of God. And that drove the Jews nuts. Okay? So that is the true identity of the man who accomplished our deliverance from the hands of the Philistine. He is the son of Jesse. He is the son of God. Christ Jesus is a descendant of Jesse because he is the son of David. Okay? But what was this conversation really about? Remember, it was promised that the man who would defeat and kill Goliath would be blessed of the king and even get his very own daughter. That was what was agreed before the fight, that whoever would go and fight Goliath and kill him, they will be given the king's daughter. And David is the man who has done this. And so the king ought to know his family connections. He has to know the true identity of this man because a relationship has to be established now between David and the family of Saul because of the king's daughter. And that will take us to 1 Samuel 18. That's the context of 1 Samuel 18. Okay? Let's go to 1 Samuel 18, beginning at verse 1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So here we get introduced to one of Saul's sons, Jonathan. I believe Jonathan was the firstborn of the three sons of Saul. Who was also in the hearing of this conversation that happened between the king and David and even Abner, the army commander of David, of King Saul. And in the hearing and seeing the exploits of David, Jonathan and David became closely knit. They became the best of friends. In other words, a new and enduring relationship was Formed in that context. Verse 2 and all the way to 4. so took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So verse 3 and 4 are very important in the development and growth of the relationship between David and Jonathan, which we'll have to explore later in other messages because we're going to have more testimony spilling all the way into the book of Second Samuel. But I need you to observe this for now. We have to define Jonathan to understand the story and understand what he did. Jonathan was the apparent heir to the throne of his father Saul because he was the firstborn. He is in line to succeed as the next king of Israel. But in light of David's victory over Goliath, Jonathan lets go of his throne, as it were, and throws his weight behind the kingship of David. Jonathan was royal, was royalty, which was very apparent to him and those who had their eyes open. Everybody who had their eyes open in Israel could see that there was something special about David. And so Jonathan recognized that. Yeah? He recognized it. Jonathan represents obviously his father Saul. He represents his throne and the testimony that Saul carried. And what Saul did not do immediately to David in recognition of his victory over Goliath, Jonathan did Because we're told that the one who would kill Goliath will be enriched with great riches by the king. He will be honored greatly by the king. Even that to say will be given the robes of the king. So what the father did not do, the son did. Jonathan did. He gave his throne as it were to David. Okay, Jonathan made a new covenant with David and made a prophetic coronation of the new king as it were before it happened. As Christ would come and make a new covenant in his blood as he went to the cross and was pronounced king of the Jews, even before he was seated on the right hand of God. The inscription on the cross said, King of the Jews. And remember, the Jews wanted Pilate to change it. And Pilate said, well, what I've written, I've written. I'm not going to change it. <laughs> and see this here, in verse 4, Pilate in verse 4 of First Samuel 18, and Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him, together with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt, and that to say, his throne and his power to the throne that was on him and gave it to David. All the power that was in the throne of Saul coming through the son, Jonathan, was now going to go to David. Jonathan stripped himself of his royal regalia and gave it to David as acceptance of God's divine election of the new king of Israel, David, even Christ. And that means what? There are only two people who have been vying to be the king over God's people. There's a testimony of the law as one of the kings, and the testimony of Christ as God's appointed king. And so when Jonathan strips himself, it means the end of the law as the ruler of God's people. And the law knows that it has come to the end of its ministry. The law had its time that it was given. And it had come to the end on account of Christ. So it strips itself of its glory because of the ministry of Christ whose glory surpasses it. The ministry of Christ is better than the ministry of the law. The ministry of the law condemns you all the time. And so the gospel has greater glory than the glory of the law. The, goal, the gospel, sorry, has more glory because it declares. Our salvation from the condemnation of the law. Okay? So a new covenant has to be made with the new king who will now rule over Israel. A king who had been divinely prepared from his youth, right from the shepherding of his fathership. That's what David was doing from when he was a little boy, being groomed by God. And he was a gentleman. And yet, a fearsome warrior in one. An excellent musician to compose the Psalms. The majority of the Psalms were written by David. By a musician. And extol the virtues of the mighty God. So David had divinely been brought into the palace of the king as a musician and a warrior so that he would learn the ropes, the ins and outs or ends of statecraft, how things happen in the White House. <laughs> and all this preparing him To be the next king of Israel, some 15 years or so later, David is coming to the throne. He's coming to get it. God has already said it. But these are the details that have to happen before that. But as David rose in popularity in Israel, his relationship with King Saul deteriorated as the king was feeling threatened. And so we see that as Christ rose in popularity with the people, his popularity with the ruling class of Israel also deteriorated. The Jews hated him. And they wanted him dead. Because they said, we will lose our jobs. If Christ becomes a new king, we'll lose our jobs. With Rome. Rome. And we also see that as the message of God's message of free and sovereign grace rises in popularity. Relationships with those who are of the law, those who are of soul, who deter it, Go and tell people that God saves people only by grace and grace alone and nothing else. And that salvation cannot be lost. And see how much they will love you. <laughs> People cannot deal with the passing away of the covenant that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Hence, if you say the true believer is not under the law of Moses, they're going to come with false accusations of anti law, anti nominism, or oh, you hate God's law. No. I don't hate God's law. I'm just saying the law is not the king on the throne. Christ is the new king on the throne. Saul is not the king on the throne. It's David. Okay. Christ is the new king on the throne and he is sufficient all by himself to meet the needs of his people. We are not anti-law, but we proclaim. And boldly so, that what the law could not do, as Paul said, what the law could not do, the law could not serve you. On account of the weakness of the flesh, the law cannot help you to perform what it requires. But God did by sending his own son, the righteous one, the holy one, to give to the law whatever the law required. Christ gave the law the perfection that it required. That's why you can't be under the law. You have to be under the one who paid for you. Christ bought you from the condemnation of the law. He owns us. Not Moses. If you're owned by the law, it means you're under its condemnation. Here this. Verse 5. Festament eighteen. So David went out wherever Saul sent him, and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So after David's dramatic victory over Goliath and the Philistines, Saul took David again, and this time, elevating him to the position of army commander. And so Dave's apprenticeship keeps unfolding. And even though it is full of much trouble, it must go on. Even paths that God has ordained for us in this life, even for our glory, they come with a lot of problems, with a lot of trouble not for lack of planning, not for lack of better planning, but because God has trouble with it. They come even with sin in the context of sin and many diverse temptations. But this is a thing that we have to understand. That's why we need to understand the God of the Bible. God does not mean harm for his people because of the, tra- the troubles that they go through, he does not mean harm for them, but a training, a teaching for what he has purposed for them to prepare them for better things through adversity. That's the preparation. He prepares us for glory through adversity. And that adversity sometimes comes through our own sins, or the sins of other people. That's just how God works. He knows how to clean up everything. He knows. knows. Verse 6 and 7, 1 Samuel 18. Now it happened as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments, So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. These were some really cheeky women. (laughs) Troublesome women. Some anti-Nomian women. (laughs) Their song was not going to get much airplay from Saul's broadcasting station if they had some radio stations there. You can't be singing like that about the king. You can't be singing despisingly of the king. But the women choir was correct. David is surely slain more than Saul. In other words, Christ accomplished more for the sinner than the Lord did. When you see David, put the name of Christ on it. That's how you interpret the story. So the law only gave a knowledge of sin to tell you that you're a sinner. And also, according to Paul, the law increased the transgression. As soon as you tell people, as I said earlier, don't do this, guess what? They're going to do it. Tell the kids, don't put your things here. Guess what? They're going to put their things right there. So that's the law. That's how the law works. You give instruction not to do something, people come and do it. So Christ is he who slew the ten thousands, including the covenant of the law. He removed that law that condemned them by way of his death. He slew it. Verse 8 and following. Then Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him, and he said, They've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed only thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? Of course, (laughs) David must have the kingdom. Yes, Christ must have the kingdom. And someone is going to be displeased. The law keepers are going to be displeased because they want to enter into the kingdom by their own works. The kingdom of Christ cannot be entered by human works. It is freely given. You freely enter. And the struggle has not yet ended between the people of David and the people of Saul. Ishmael is still displeased with Isaac. Ishmael was the son of Abraham with Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. And Isaac was the son of promise through Sarah. And Ishmael was mocking Isaac. For the gospel testimony that those who are of the law will always mock those who are of Christ. And so the mocking continues. The testimony has not yet stopped. Verse 9 to 11, still in the same chapter. So saw I, David, from that day forward. And it happened the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul. And he prophesied inside the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times but there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear for he said, I'll pin David to the wall but David escaped his presence twice. So from that day forward, Saul determined to bring an end to David after he had that wonderful song from the women The running battles between David and Saul had begun in earnest. And on the next day of the unpopular singing by the women, God sent an evil spirit to Saul, a distressing spirit, and it caused him to prophesy. Yes, even evil spirits, demonic spirits do cause people to prophesy things. So one has to be careful how they are hearing the spiritual realm, the spiritual forces have been around longer than we have been. They know a whole lot of things about us even than we know ourselves. So they can say some things that are truthful. So you have to be careful. About these guys who go about saying they prophesy, They are prophesying this and prophesying that. But I need you to pay attention to what the text says. It says the evil spirit was from God. In other words, it got permission and instruction from God himself. To enter the king and torment him. God gave them permission. And a lot of preachers cannot say that. They're afraid to say that. But that's not speaking to God's glory. God says, I did that. He does that. And people say, oh no, but that will make God the author of evil and of sin. Here's the problem. They're not talking about the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible said he does that. They're talking about their own God of their own imagination. God does whatever he wants and he is not made unholy because of that. Hear what Colossians 1.16 says. To the matter of control of his creation in the spiritual realm, even in the physical realm. Hear what Paul says of Christ. In Colossians 1.16, is a very important verse to understand. Paul says, for by him, that is by Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. So by Christ, all things, the good, the bad, the ugly, created by him, visible and invisible, the things that we see and things that we cannot see, created by him, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, these are The fallen angels, the thrones, dominions, principalities or powers are ranks of the evil angels. Paul says, created by him. And hear this. All things were created through him and for him. So all these things, the fallen angels, the good angels, the good, the bad, all have purpose. For which God created them. And he uses them to accomplish his purpose. So the question then is, was it sin for God to send an evil spirit to Saul? No, it was not. Was it sin for God to have sin in his creation? Because God is all-powerful. If he wanted, there would not be any sin in his creation. There would not be any death in creation. There wouldn't be any suffering in his creation. He has all the power to stop it, but he doesn't. Why? Because he has a greater purpose with it. He is working something that we don't understand, but ultimately is to the glory of his name. These are just tools or means to a greater end. So sin cannot be ascribed to God by reason of being God. God does not sin. God cannot sin. But he uses sin to achieve his goal. He uses sin to bring us to himself through Christ. Because Christ could not have died. We could not have eternal life. Apart from Christ coming and dying for us. God could not just give us eternal life. It had to come by way of the cross. And the cross could not come apart from sin. That's how things are connected. So, all things are by Him and for Him. And preachers who are too quick to protect God leave people with no good answers to troubling questions. They're too quick to want to protect God. God does not need to be protected, He is God. He has given us enough testimony from the scriptures to understand some of the things that he does. Okay? So if you know the true God of the Bible, we should have good answers for people. We should give them hope to say, don't lean on your understanding. There's a God in heaven who is running the show. You don't know the end from the means. You cannot try to extrapolate what has happened today into 20 years from now, into 50 years from now. You don't know that? But God knows. He knows what he means by seemingly the difficult things that he brings in our life. He knows. But at the end of it, all things work out for good for his people. They always do. Why? Because he's in control of every detail of it. So the answer to all things is that God is God. And he does whatever he wants to whomever he wants as many times as he wants for his glory. But one of the things that he has done is that he has determined to save you from himself. And that cannot be changed. You can't change it. No matter how you try. You can try to run away from him when you can't. You can refuse your salvation, his salvation, but if he has saved you, you are coming home. Or he's going to force you. People say, oh, God does not force people. No, that's not true. (laughs) God will drag you to himself because he will not lose any for whom he gave to his son. He, He has to be glorified in bringing his people to himself. He has to be praised for his grace and mercy. and Say, thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Okay. So the running battles between Saul and David have begun. With Saul wanting to kill David with his spear, But like the Jews after him, David could not die. The Lord could not die before his time, as the book of John repeatedly says. The Jews were after Jesus, wanted to kill him. But they could not lay their hands on him. And John would say, because his time was not yet. But in the fullness of time, Saul would have his wish granted through the law, because the Christ, the son of David, would finally be pinned down to the wall of the cross by the spear of the law. Because remember, David, Saul is seeking to pin David to the wall through, by means of his spear. And what is that saying? There was a cast that was in the spear. Of Saul and it was pointed at David it was pointed at Christ so that David would not have the throne so the curse that came by way of Adam's sin is the one that is working its way through to want and kill David to want and kill the son of David that is Christ Jesus, is following someone. Because the curse of our sin could only be removed by one from the house of David, even the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the curse was removed. Galatians chapter 3. So that's the spear. Hear this. Verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but departed, but had departed from Saul. Rightly so. Saul was afraid for his throne. The Lord had departed him, had fired him from his kingship. But for now, he will retain his throne to develop more gospel testimony. There's still a whole lot of gospel testimony that is to happen between now and the time that David comes to the throne. Verse 18 Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. So Saul decided to take care of the David problem by promoting him. Be careful of the promotions. (laughs) By promoting him to be his captain of a thousand. And that is to say, he had his own ulterior motives for for, for that promotion, but this was all working as God had purposed to happen for both of them. God is the one who is behind all these things. Verse 14. And David behaved wisely in all his ways and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. So that is Christ behaving wisely in all his ways and driving the ruling elites of the Jews, crazy, behaving wisely, not breaking the law, fulfilling everything that God required him to do. And as a result of that, the Jews even got more fearful of the Lord Jesus. But not everyone hated or was afraid of David, nor of Christ. Not everybody in Palestine, hated Jesus. The common people gladly followed him. They gladly had him. Here is verse 16. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. All Israel and Judah, the two houses, loved David as he was going in and out before them in leading them in battle against the Philistines and their enemies. Verse 17, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I'll give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. When Saul saw that he had no power over David to destroy him, to stop him from ascending to the throne, he thought to enlist the help of his daughter and the Philistines to do his bidding. It seems Saul had begged out on the promise of 1 Samuel 17, verse 25, that the man who would defeat Goliath would get the king's daughter, it seemed like. But remember, this is God's script. Saul is not driving anything. There's no one who's driving anything in this story. It's not David, it's not Saul. It's God who's driving the narrative. So I need you to understand that. So God is the one introducing all these different twists and turns to the story because there's gospel testimony behind those twists and turns. And this verse 17 of 1 Samuel 18 is very glorious testimony. Glorious gospel testimony. And may the Lord grant you understanding what I'm about to share. I'm going to read that verse again and then go to my point. Verse 17 says, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I'll give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the lost battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him. But let the hand of the Philistines be against him. David must get the king's daughter. Because that's what was agreed in the chapter before. Because he killed Goliath. So he must get the king's daughter. That is already an established fact. Christ must get the king's daughter. The church. That is and already established fact by God's decree from eternity that Christ should have a bride. He should have a bride. No two ways about it. But more gospel testimony has to be woven around the story. There's a lot of moving parts in the story of Christ. So remember, the king, King Saul, was also a type of God the Father. Because he is the one who has the daughter to be given to David. Even Christ, because of his victory over Goliath. The condition for David to get the king's daughter is to kill or was to kill Goliath. The condition for Christ to get the church was for him to die on the cross. That's the only condition of salvation. It's not about anything that we do that is the decree of God. The church is given to Christ on account of his suffering, on account of his obedience, on account of his own death on the cross. So God the Father knows and has stipulated that the one who gets the church must also suffer death. Suffer death fighting the lost battles. The gospel is Christ coming and fighting God's battles. As Saul said. Okay? So what happens? Saul appoints David to lead the army into battle that he may suffer death at the hands of the Philistines. In the matter of the gospel, Christ is he who was appointed the captain of our salvation for the suffering of death at the hands of the Philistines. Saul is in the picture of God the Father and he's giving the decree that the man who has to get his daughter must lead the army and go to battle and die there. That's the condition. And the Philistines then are standing for the hands of sin. Sin imputed to Christ is what caused him to die. Those are the hands of the Philistines. And in this, Christ was fighting the lost battles, God's battles to redeem his church. But if Christ does not come and die, the daughter of the king remains single, and it's not good for a man to be alone. That's Genesis two224. It's not good, therefore, a man shall leave his father right and mother and be joined to his wife. That was talking about Christ. That's the mystery. When we have our marriages. That's speaking the mystery of Christ in the church. That's the connection. That's how God has fulfilled what we have as a shadow. Our marriages are a shadow of the substance. The substance is Christ. It's our eternal marriage to God through Christ. Okay? So sin came upon us for Christ to die. According to the statement by King Saul, sin was the means to the death of Christ. Christ Jesus could not die apart from our sin, and yet God appointed him to die for our sins from before the foundation of the world. Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world because of the king's daughter. His glory and because of the Philistines. And that is why in the book of Genesis, God comes to Adam and says, the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. In the day. He didn't say if you eat. That's how a lot of people say it. That's not what the text says. God doesn't put a condition and say, well, if you don't eat it, then you'll be fine. No, he says, in the day that you shall eat, you shall surely die. So death is already introduced to the first Adam who was a type of the second Adam to come, and that is Christ. So death was always in the picture. God required it for us to be saved. So Saul proposed to give his older daughter, Merab, But David had some protestation to make to the king's idea. Verse 18. So David said to Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's life in my father's family in Israel? That I shall that I should be son-in-law to the king. David says, Who am I? And what is my life and my father's family in Israel? that I should be made son-in-law to the king. Remember, this way you can deduce things that are not written, but that are there in the text. The daughters of Saul are beautiful girls. Why? Because we know the father was handsome. It's already in the text that <laughs> Saul was very handsome. And so the daughters of the king were very beautiful girls, and David is looking at himself and is like, "Man, oh man, how, who am I, to be made the son-in-law of this king and all these beautiful girls?" So that is what David would become. Getting married into royalty. That is Christ speaking, of what would become of him in respect of his human relations with the church, and God the Father, because remember Christ, though being the Logos, he is the word of God. When he adds human nature to himself, he just now takes the testimony of David and says, where am I? Look at my lawliness in the flesh to be made the son-in-law of the king. So if Christ has to get the king's daughter, what does that make him to the king? It makes him the son-in-law to the king. <laughs> he is made the son-in-law to God the father. People have never thought about that. But he is marrying the daughter of the king. So he has to be the son-in-law of the king. Anyone who gets married to someone's daughter becomes the son-in-law to the father-in-law. That is very clear, even in our own human relations. But we did not begin with that. This is all gospel testimony about Christ. He is the son in Lord, the king, because of the king's daughter, the church. Verse 19. But it happened at the time when Merab, daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the male as a wife. So Saul seemingly had a sudden, about 10, on the giving of Merab to David. He gave the older sister to Adriel as a wife for a developing gospel testimony. I'll kind of speak to it briefly at the end. But then we're told this. We still have a whole lot more to talk about. So let's go to verse 20. Now Mikhail Saul's daughter loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So apparently it was known that Mikhail, another of Saul's daughters, loved David. And this matter was told the king, who was very pleased. With the news. But here the thinking behind Saul. Why Saul was very happy about that. Verse 21. So Saul said. I'll give her to him. That she may be a snare to him. And that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time. You shall be my son-in-law today. Today the transaction has to happen. The legal transaction has to happen today. There has to be a change of legal status of David becoming the son-in-law of the king today. Saul realized that he still had another weapon up his sleeve by which to get David killed. So he's determined. He's determined to get David killed. He wants a David who is dead, not one who is limping in a wheelchair. <laughs> Even if it means he uses the agency of his own daughter and the Philistines. The text says, I'll give he, I'll give her to him that she may be a snare to him. And that is correct testimony. The church. The daughter of the king proved to be a snare for Jesus. As Eve proved to be a snare to Adam because of the tree. Remember, it is not Adam who ate first. Adam got condemned because of Eve. As Christ was condemned because of the church, his bride. What did the church Caused to happen to Christ. What did we do that caused him trouble? We got him killed by the Philistines. That's what God is saying through the king. That's what God is exactly saying. That if Christ has to die, it has to happen on account of my beautiful daughter that I'm going to give to him as a snare. (laughs) And this in a spiritual sense. God is not doing things in the way that we think. He is just preaching the gospel in pictures to make the gospel accessible to our minds. So the church got Christ crucified. This church, this daughter who loved David, this daughter who now loved Christ, gospel testimony spoken purely in human terms. I'm going to give him the church, the bride. But she's a sinner. And she's going to cause him great trouble. A snare and he has to die. And you see what that is saying. The emphasis on the death of David is God saying there's no salvation apart from the death of Christ. That's the point. That's the real point. Verse 22. And Saul commanded his servants and said, communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So the king then spoke to his servants to relate to David about the king's delight in David. God has delight in Christ, and that was communicated in many different ways, even by himself. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The king has delight in Christ. And how he wanted him to be the king's son in law. God wanted Christ to be the one to be married to the church, to be the king's son-in-law, and that to say, all of God's servants bear witness of Christ. They bear witness of God's delight in Christ. God is delighted in Christ. See that the king said to all his servants, communicate to David and tell him of my delight in him and how all his servants love him. All the servants of Christ love Christ. All of God's servants, as I said, they bear witness to God's delight in Christ. To be the rightful heir and son-in-law to his chosen daughter. God is not a boring storyteller. That's why he writes it this way. Okay? Okay? And to this the real son-in-law came and said, to the matter of witness, and said this of those that bear witness of him, the king's servants. Let's go to John 5, to 39. John 5, to 39. Jesus said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. So David cannot just bear witness of himself. The witness has to come from the king's servants. Otherwise, his testimony will not be true. There's another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist bore witness of Christ as God's servant. Yet I do not receive testimony from man. I have better testimony than the testimony of John. But I say this thing that you may be saved. I say this thing that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. John the Baptist was inferior to Christ. John representing the law and the prophets because John was a prophet and also he was a Levite which means he was a priest representing the law. So the law and the prophets were with John and they bear witness of the person of Christ. And Jesus says, even that is not good enough as far as witness. I have better witness than the law and the prophets. He was the burning and shining lamp, A lamp that had to be fueled by kerosene and they had to be held in someone's hand Like if you have a lamp like that, you have to take it wherever you want to go with it. So John the Baptist was inferior and had to be carried around. Jesus did not need to be carried around by anybody in anybody's hands. But if you rejoiced in John Baptist's testimony, you should rejoice even more from my testimony and the testimony that my father gives of me. Verse 36, but I have... A greater witness, you see the comparison, but I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish or to do, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The works that David was doing bear or bore witness that God was with him. That's the testimony that we hear from 1 Samuel 17 and 18 that God was with him. The works that David did bore witness that God was with him. Verse 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me, just as Saul testified and said, Well, you go tell David that I have delight in him. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. He's speaking to the Jews who are not believing his testimony. You say the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me. You search the scriptures. People are reading the Bible, Old Testament, in that context. It just says, you're not reading them correctly. All these stories, they're talking about me. That is why we tell the story of Christ like this. This is a story of Christ. It's not a story of David. It's not a story of Saul. This is God preaching Christ through those persons. Okay? Verse 23. So Saul 7 spoke those words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? So David is right. Does it seem to you A light thing to be a king's son-in-law. That is the position that Christ holds with respect to the church. You know all the issues that happen with the monarchy in England. The drama around it. It's not an easy thing to be married into that family. (laughs) It is not an easy thing To be married into royalty. So that is the position that Christ holds with respect to the church. This is the position of royalty and taking care of a royal bride. A high maintenance bride. (laughs) Royalty is high maintenance. She has to be kept looking pretty all the time. She needs new and expensive clothes by way of his death. You're not going to be shopping at Walmart to clothe royalty. She has to be kept clean and above reproach. And that is why the Bible says Christ ever lives to make intercession for her to keep her clean. It's high maintenance to keep the church clean. So, David said, is it not a light thing? It is not a light thing to be called the king's son's law. This is so involving. So, do not minimize what Christ has done to make us clean and make us above reproach before God. Make us blameless before God. He suffered reproach for the sake of our salvation. You see that David said, Seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man, you see, that's the problem. If you're married into royalty and you're poor, you won't be able to meet all these needs. So Christ was the poor and lightly esteemed man. That is who he became when he added humanity to himself. He was poor, In that he veiled his glory that he had with the Father. He covered it in his human flesh so that people could not just see it. They just saw an ordinary person. A thing that had never happened before from all of eternity. So he became poor by that very fact of adding humanity to himself. He became poor in his incarnation, in his birth in the flesh. Let's go to Luke 2 verse seven. Hear this about his birth. And she brought forth, that is Mary, the mother of Christ, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Jesus did not have a nice crib from Maurice Furnishers, <laughs> he was in the manger. This is the God of creation in some manger, some feeding trough for animals. That's his entrance into the world. And Paul would let us say of him, of his poverty in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich, yet for your sex he became poor. He became poor that you through his poverty might become rich, become rich toward God by giving you his righteousness. Okay? So Jesus did not have a home in this world. He came by way of the manger. If you still remember one time, I don't remember the book, but I think it's a story carried in both Matthew and Luke, probably Mark, where he said, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man has nowhere. How could that be? For the one who created all things. He was saying, he does not have a home in this world. Came by way of the manger. No room at the inn for him. nowhere to lay his head. Even his grave was borrowed. Was borrowed from Joseph of Arimathea. Okay. So that's speaking to the poverty of Christ. And we can't exhaust the subject of the poverty of Christ. Let's go to verse 24. We're almost done. And the servants of Saul told him, saying, In this manner David spoke, in this manner of verse 23, that how can I be. Mad the son-in-law of the king, seeing that I'm such a poor and lightly esteemed man. The people of the Jews, they lightly esteemed Christ. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Lightly esteemed. If they had known the hour of their visitation, if they'd understood that salvation had come upon them, they would have all embraced him so that's what he was saying. I'm lightly esteemed. I have really not much uh, in the manner of human speaking. Verse twenty-five. Then Saul said, "Thus he shall say to David: The king does not desire any dowry, but one hundred foreskins of the Philistines, to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines." Is he is <laughs> unrelenting on this. See how determined Saul is to get David to fall by the hand of the Philistines. He says, tell David that I actually do not need a dowry price for you to get my daughter. I'm going to waive that requirement. I do not need any money. I do not need any livestock from you. Because if that were the case, you just bring the money to my house. You would just have get your family to bring 20 head of cattle and the whole marriage thing is done. So Saul said, no, I don't need any dowry of that kind. But this is what I need. Bring me 100 foreskins of the Philistines. That will do it for me. In other words, shed some blood. circumcise some people and that is the price for your bride. You go and kill someone, go to battle, bring some blood, and that's going to be enough for me. And in this circumcision are the enemies of the king taken care of. In the circumcision by the hands of David are the enemies of the king taken care of. In the circumcision by the hands of Christ are the enemies of God and God's people taken off? care of. The circumcision of Christ is what took care of all your issues before God. Christ did not come to make payment by way of money for salvation. He said, I'll give my life a ransom. Saul is saying to David, you go and give your life for ransom by way of the Philistines. Bring me some foreskins. Circumcise some people for me. That will make me happy. And that is what Christ had to present back to the Father. A circumcision of his people by the cross. So that is in reference to the cross right there. When you're talking about circumcision, in the matter of salvation, you're not speaking of the cross. You're speaking of the death of Christ. You're speaking of the shedding of blood of Christ. Because you can't do a circumcision without your hands getting bloody and so you see the hands of Christ getting bloody on the cross because of the nail, nails. That's circumcision in the matter of spiritual understanding. So Paul says this in Colossians 2. This is a very important verse in reference to what I just said. Philippians, sorry, Colossians 2, 11, 14. He says, in him, that is in Christ, you will also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In the context of David, God is just preaching the shadows of things. But when it comes to Christ, it is not real physical circumcision. It is circumcision made without hands. It's a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. So the picture of circumcision is the removal of your sin, is the removal of your condemnation. That is what circumcision preaches. That's what God was preaching. So by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses, And the uncircumcision of your flesh, the uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning still being under the condemnation and sin of Adam, he has made alive, he has made you alive to God. As far as God is concerned, you are alive to him. You are not dead anymore. You are not condemned anymore. He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, all of them. That's the connection. That's the spiritual understanding that in the death of Christ, in that circumcision, God has forgiven you of all your trespasses, of yesterday, today, and the ones that you're going to do between now and when you die, all taken care of. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. So the handwriting of ordinances that were contrary to us, they were against us, is the law was contrary to us because it always condemned us. So Christ wiped out that handwriting that had the charges of your sin. He wiped us. He, sorry, he wiped the handwriting and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. That's what Christ did. He nailed the handwriting of any accusation, of any sins, of any condemnation that was on you. He nailed it all on the cross. So when the matter of circumcision of the Philistines by the hand of David was presented to him, this was his response. Let's see if David was happy with this arrangement. Verse 26, so when his servants told David this was, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired, therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full count to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. So it pleased David to accept the mission. To hear of this requirement by the king. It was something that was within his capacity to do. It was something that was agreeable to him. And it pleased David on that condition to be the king's son-in-law if this was the only requirement for him to satisfy. And thus, it pleased Christ to be God's son-in-law in respect of our salvation, in respect of the cross and our redemption. He willingly offered himself, Christ willingly offered himself to accomplish our salvation, to go to war with the Philistines and circumcise some people. As did David for Mikau. And to bring foreskins back to God as David did to the king Saul. And Christ, by way of his shed blood, he brought a people to God. Christ brought a people to God. And see that David brought not just 100 foreskins, but 200 double. And that is to say, Christ Jesus met the full requirement of our salvation as God had stipulated to him, over and above. In other words, there's nothing lacking for your salvation that Christ did not already give to God. That's the point. He met the requirement. In full. And the text says. And they. That is Saul's servants. Gave them. In full count. To the king. Saul's servants gave them. In full count. They were counted. They counted them. That he might become. The king's son-in-law. Everyone. For whom Christ died for. He had to be counted. And if he did not save just one of them, David has to go back. If David brings 99 foreskins, the king is not going to be happy. He needs 100. But he's happy with 200. So Christ made full payment for our salvation. He did not leave us halfway to the international space station and say, okay, Katie, now you can finish the rest and make it all the way by something that you can imagine to do. He did it all. He even said himself, it's finished. Because he had made the count. It is finished. The counting of the four kings had been done. The work had been done. A full account given of what Christ did. Okay? So we see this. That the king, King Saul, was satisfied by the offering. And what did he do in response? He immediately gave Michal, his daughter, his wife, to David. And so Christ, sorry, and so God was satisfied with the death of Christ, and He immediately gave the church to Christ for His possession, as the Book of Acts says in twenty, Acts twenty verse twenty-eight, speaking to the Ephesian elders. Apostle Paul said, you shepherd the flock of God. The church of God that he purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church with his own blood. David purchased Michal at the cost of the blood that he shed of the Philistines. At the cost of the blood. The king requires blood for Michal to be married to David. God required blood from Christ for him to be married to the church. So we can't just say, oh, Jesus accomplished redemption and then put all kinds of requirements there. No, it does not work like that. We have to say, what did he get on account of his death? Because David got something. He got the king's daughter. Christ got something. The king's daughter, that is the church. In other words, he justified the king's daughter by the shed blood. Because that's what the blood is supposed to do. The blood is for the remission, for the cancellation of the sins of the king's daughter. And he took her to himself and became the king's son-in-law. So what was the conclusion by Saul about David and what he had done? Verse 28. Two more verses and we're done. The Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Mikhail. Saul's daughter loved him. Two conclusions. God was with David and that Saul's daughter was well in the hands of David. She loved David. God is with Christ and the church loves Christ. The church is represented by the testimony of Mikhail without any doubt. Okay. Verse 29. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Why? Because the gospel testimony through David and Saul is yet to be concluded. There's still a whole lot more things that God has to work out. That's why it was not concluded here. Verse thirty. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so that his name became highly esteemed. David's military success and popularity continued to increase. And that for the testimony of Christ. The glory of Christ shall continue to increase in our eyes as we get to know him better, even more in all of eternity. Because when Jesus prayed in John 17, He said, Father, I would want, I would like for all those that you gave to me to behold the glory that I had with you from before the foundation of the world. Christ wants you to see the glory that he has and be blown away by it. (laughs) I want them to come and see it. But they've never seen anything like it. And the father answered that. Every prayer of Christ was answered. And so you shall behold the glory of Christ that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world. Okay? So let me con- connect a few things for you to conclude my message. Many would be wondering why David did not get married immediately. Because he was not married. And Mirab was Saul's older daughter and she had to be, should have been given first as the wife. And those who know gospel testimony from the Old Testament types may have already solved the puzzle. The two sisters represent two covenants. As David and Saul represent two covenants. Saul represents the covenant of the law. David represents the covenant of Christ, the New Testament. The old covenant of the law is represented by Merab, the older daughter, and the new covenant by Michal. Christ is not married to us in the old covenant of the law, but the new. And so, David could not be married to Merab. He had been be married to the second one, to the second covenant. Merab and his husband, Adriel, will let her bear five sons together. And guess what? David shall kill the five sons. Why? Because Merab, representing the Old Testament, according to Romans 7, the law bears fruit Edward unto death the law bears fruit unto death the covenant of the law bears fruit unto death so that is the testimony that is there i have a whole another message that i want to preach on it and i'll connect those more points much more clearly from the text of that scripture but that's the reason why those two girls represent two covenants and Christ is married to us in the second one, represented by Michal. But I need you to see the David-Christ connections. What David got from the king in the aftermath of his victory over the Philistines, he got the daughter's king, Michal, who loved him. And that To say Christ, the poor and lightly esteemed man, did not just die to make our marriage to him possible. Later, at some point, at faith and repentance. We are not married to Christ. God is not having a marriage ceremony every day someone comes to Christ. But the church as a body is one. That's called. That's why the New Testament calls it the body of Christ. It's one. So the marriage transaction happened for all who are in Christ the one time that he offered himself. So what happens in time is that the daughters of the king because they're born at different stages of history. The Holy Spirit is sent to them by God, to say, "Oh, do you know, or did you know, that I received two hundred foreskins from David, from Christ, for your marriage? I have given you to David; you belong to David already." So, faith and repentance does not cause us to belong to Christ; they prove that we were already given to Christ. Do you understand the connection? We don't have to. Repos- If our marriage to Christ is dependent on something that we do, we are always going to fall short. And God will not do that. King Saul will not take any less than 100 foreskins. So the condition has been stipulated and the condition has been satisfied by Christ. It is the cross. So we come and rejoice in that the king accepted what David brought to him and David got the bride And the king accepted what Christ brought to him and he got the church. He got the body that is uh, the body of the elect. Also, I have two more lines. And a full count of the foreskins was done before the king. And it was agreeable to him. It satisfied him to give Michal to David as God did with Christ. So a full count of the work of Christ was done, every jot and tittle was made account for, and God was satisfied with it. And God gave Christ the the bride. I'm going to have to connect something that just came to my mind. I went to the U.S. Embassy the first time to come to the United States. 23 years ago. I spoke to this lady, I don't remember her name, but I submitted my documents. And the US Embassy, they don't really talk much to you. They just look at you. <laughs> they talk to the documents. They make full count of what you present to them and see if it meets the requirements. And the lady only said something, one statement to me after she had, it was a four-minute interview. Four minutes felt like 500 minutes. She said, James, I see no reason why I should deny you entrance into the United States. Come and get your visa on Monday. Come get your passport. That's exactly God's testimony. The stipulations were made. I satisfied the requirements. And the U.S. consular officer could only say, you have met all the requirements stipulated by the United States government for you to gain entry into the United States without any problems. So that's what Christ did for us. Okay? Christ was given his church because he defeated the Philistines. Sin, death, law, condemnation that was carried in the testimony of the Philistines. And that is the gospel testimony according to the king's (laughs) son-in-law. According to David and Saul. It's a wonderful message. God be praised. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many... Words that have been spoken, I thank you for revealing the testament of Christ through the story of David and, and King Saul and the Philistines as the story of Christ and our salvation and how Christ acquired his bride, the church, because he made full payment by the death of the cross. We honor you for this whom you gathered this morning, those who are gathered here and those who are online, Lord, I pray that you minister to them the truth of this gospel. We honor you, glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the daughters of the king. (laughs) Bye-bye. We'll see you later.